This is High Stakes from Gerard Phillips, Kate, and Hancock. This is David Schifrin on High Stakes. If you've been listening this week, you know we're spending a lot of time with our friends from across the healthcare industry. Today, Molly, Kate, and I are speaking with Jesse Neal, partner at Waller here in Nashville. Jesse is an experienced healthcare attorney with a specialty in operations and policy. And he and Molly are here to join forces and talk about some of the issues surrounding workforce and staffing management through the COVID-19 pandemic and what lies beyond as we begin to move into the recovery and refocusing phase. So Jesse, uh, let us know what you're seeing. Kick us off with what's happening right now as so many providers are having to make changes, uh, whether it's furloughs or layoffs or redeployments, uh, and then consider ways to bring those folks back uh, in their staffing models. Very good. And I'm, I'm glad to just talk generally about what I've seen. And I think from the purely uh, legal perspective, I've got in my mind a, a couple different categories of work that I've been engaged to do. One is uh, really the very first from an operational perspective, when the C-suite convenes to determine and model out what the next 30 and 60 and 90 days are going to look like, which is kind of step one when you're trying to determine your FTE management requirements and, you know, to make that help them model out what the next 30, 60, 90 days as difficult as you can imagine that would be. I've been looking at a couple sources in particular. One is in the geographic location where they are operating and providing services. Each jurisdiction at the moment just about has issued orders related to essential versus non-essential services, uh, stay-at-home orders. Some jurisdictions have even issued essential versus non-essential directives specifically to healthcare providers. But it was also important for that provider to know, okay, you know, I've got some set of services in a post-acute setting that are deemed essential for a number of reasons, but I have this sect here that is not going to be deemed essential. And we need to uh, communicate with our patients uh, and with our employees who are involved and model out what that does to our cash flow over, over the next 30 to 60 uh, to 90 days. And so th- that's kind of the first source of my work at the moment is helping to model out what the world's going to be like. And two, you know, once you get a, a model, you normally have to unfortunately you know, follow basically the worst case scenario so that you're prepared. At that point, giving strictly speaking state-specific employment law advice about notice, it'll be very specific to the size of the employer, the nature of the employer, the geographic location. And so those very much need to be followed. My general guidance would be once you've determined what you're you know modeling and what you're going to need to do in terms of FTEs I would engage a employment lawyer in your particular state to help manage and mitigate the risk around it a lot to cover there but just just wanted to share that as a reference point thanks Jesse so Molly with that like what Jesse was just talking about there's so much structure around what's deemed essential non-essential and so many other considerations and it's complicated issues right but when and Jesse talked about communicating that to staff and patients how do you take kind of that regulatory legal framework and say all right unfortunately this is the situation but here's what it means and here's how do you communicate it to those people yeah i think that the way to think about that is for any healthcare provider you know in the services space that is in, in operations right now, there is likely a 
a lot of information that needs to be shared and its impact to various stakeholders within the organization probably varies pretty significantly depending to your point on you know where they fall in the organization what their position is the things they're responsible for and then the 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 tiered approach in which that organization is finding its way back to full operating capacity i think there's a couple of ground rules though that are universal and that apply to all employees and and, and apply to how companies in this moment craft their communication strategies so i would say for a good rule of thumb for companies in this moment in time as it pertains to their employee communications no matter you know what level the employee is or where the company is in their return to operations phase is to over communicate so you know that that's one good rule of thumb even if there's not new information to share your employees want to hear from you they want to know what's guiding your decisions what are you committed to as a company and they, as much as they want to know sort of the technical information uh, that pertains to them. So uh, get in a cadence of regularly communicating with your employees. I think it's important to also use multiple channels. So making sure, you know, time and time again, we find in our work that employees typically turn to their manager as their source of truth. So, you know, if a company is putting out an announcement that um, impacts anything to do with employment or changes for employees and benefits or hours of operations, or policies or returning to work, reinstating services, all those types of things we're talking about, try to work with your managers ahead of time first to get them prepared, make sure they have the communication tools that they need. So for example, you might send out an all users email to your employees and then have your managers follow up with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis to make sure that they have, they know that information. And a manager needs to have an FAQ, they need to have talking points, they need to have those things ahead of time so that they can successfully communicate those changes. And I also think that it's just, uh, these are kind of meat and potatoes sort of attributes or things to say, but I think being clear and concise with employees is important during a time like this and only communicating with them the things that you know for sure. So, you know, don't pontificate on what might happen later or what you know the things are that could impact them, et cetera. I would put organize your work into two buckets. One is what you know for sure, confirmed factual information. And then think of the second category or the second bucket as a more of a the philosophical approach to how your company is making these decisions. What are the things you're committed to? What are the ground rules that you want to leverage with employees as it pertains to communication? What are the guiding principles you're going to use to make those decisions, et cetera? I think employees are hungry for both of those right now. And I will just, I'll echo, you know, what occurred in, in, as she was as spelling out kind of the different hallmarks of effective communication. Your last point, of course, was the lawyer's first thought, which was make sure that the communications that go to employees, it needs to be true and also needs to be very explicit and accurate and not subject to misinterpretation and not from a lawyer's perspective. Uh, what occurs to me is you get a group of employees who uh, think they were offered one deal and in the end when they get their paycheck they they feel like they got another one that obviously is a legal risk and a costly legal risk that an organization can can subject itself to but also generally when you're trying to make your enterprise get through this tough stretch making sure that your employees feel like they are getting clear and concise good bad and ugly 
information to me helps mitigate the risk, frankly, of a lot of the, the legal problems you get. And I think it also helps everybody kind of row in the, in the right direction. So, you know, shooting for the stars, telling them you'll be there for them, telling them that we'll do what it takes to get you and your family through sounds good, but, you know, just be careful what you wish for and be, be careful what you promise because you, you, in the end, from someone else's perspective, may not be able to deliver, may be impossible to deliver. So telling them what you know, telling them what you don't know, and telling them that you'll share more as you learn more, to me, does a lot to keep the ball rolling uh, in the right direction. So something that's come up is around communicating with uh, furloughed employees. And so one of the questions that was raised uh, among our team was the concern that as you're communicating with them, that becomes work or could be labeled as work. So is there anything to consider there with the employees who have been furloughed? So I, I do think that there are there won't be a one size fits all. You'll have to take into account you know, the nature of uh, the size of the, the company, the location that you're in. But third and most importantly, I think that the situation is so dynamic and fluid right now in, in that employees that you just frankly cannot afford to pay full freight today, you might have to have them back in the office and working on short notice. And so, you know, when when you are communicating with, with employees about employment matters, you know, s- setting expectations, clear ground rules, you know, scenarios that are potentially likely and that could require a different approach, you know, some agreed upon modes of communication and notice, making sure as much of that is communicated on the on the front end that can be, I think is, you know, is, is probably a, a risk mitigation approach that makes sense. But I do think given the, the nature, it's a pandemic, there's going to have to be some flexibility but I do think it's it's uh, that's one of the areas where the, probably the the legal and the communication best practices merge, and you you want to be clear and concise about expectations and timeframes. What about just I'm not even sure how to ask this question, but it's it's like just maintaining loyalty, right? Because you're telling people that everything's changing, and obviously we're all in this together, and we all recognize that that hard decisions are necessary. But to the point that both of you have have already talked about being clear, the good, bad, and the ugly should help mitigate the risk of, of problems down the road in one way or another. But there's still that element of like people are going to be upset. Well, I'll jump in. I'm going to cover the not legal side of this and leave that to Jesse. <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, every every company that is in the business of providing healthcare has behind it some sort of mission or commitment to superior patient care and to doing what they do with the to the best of their ability. I think that's an inherent drive in physicians and other caregivers and nurses. And certainly I know in a lot of health services companies, you know, they're they're striving to do something in an innovative fashion and to make healthcare better or faster or stronger or, you know, whatever their their mission is and wanting to ensure that patients have a positive experience and get the care that they need and good outcomes. I think it's in their DNA. So I think, you know, this is a time when there's hard information, like hard decisions to make and information to share that isn't positive. Falling back on those things and verbalizing your commitment to those things is important for employees to remember that they're part of something bigger and that the company has a bigger mission beyond 
their individual role in that company. And so talking about that as sort of a guidepost for how decisions are going to be made about what services to offer, when to bring people back to work, what sort of environment we want to create for employees and each other, et cetera. So that's, that's sort of one thing. And the other thing I would say is falling back on your on your values as a company. You know, what are those values that you're committed to as a company and how are you you know, how is this moment strengthening those values or how are those values acting as a, as a guidepost to how decisions are being made? I see a lot of companies that are successfully weathering hard decisions and in communicating them, it's because their companies know they're trying to do the right thing and they know they're thinking about the bigger picture, which is how to protect access to patient care, how to, you know, work well with the resources that they have and how to create a safe environment for employees to work and, and provide care and go back home to their families. So I think some of those those broader tenets that that anchor a company are a good thing to fall back on during a time like this. And I, I think from a legal perspective, uh, not unrelated to the the communication strategy, I think is generally speaking, you should be consistent with uh, how you approach the FTE management or other operational and communication tactics and strategies that that you develop. And related to that, I think being transparent about these are factors when we're looking at our approach to weathering the storm. You know, first priority is our employees and their safety. Second, patients and access and maintaining care. You know, third, you know, serving our fellow stakeholders in the in the healthcare community and using those as guideposts when you're making determination about staffing, furloughs, FTEs, pay cuts, pay increases. If, if an employee feels like they are in the loop and they, they see the reason why decisions are being made and how they came to a decision and it's, a, and it's applied fairly, then I think that that's a different scenario than, you know, this is just another case of office politics. So-and-so is friends out of the office with that person, so they're not going to get furloughed. The, the main thing, uh, I think, it really helps from, believe it or not, a legal perspective is once you come up with an approach and the kind of the benchmarks for the targets you're trying to hit, you need to be consistent and transparent on how you implement it. And I think it'll, you know, people can can swallow a, a bitter pill and move on to the next if they, if they know that it's in the end a, a fair shake. So looking a little bit farther out, what does all this mean for you know, the health services world, the sort of non-traditional providers, and we just saw so much growth in that part of the industry over the last several years, and everything has been shaken in just these past few weeks. And so as we start to look towards the end of this acute phase of the coronavirus crisis, where are we headed? And, and where does the massive changes in staffing that we're seeing now position the industry going forward? I think that you know a couple couple different ideas occurred to me. One is that for providers and just the rest of the economy around the globe, there is not going to be a bell that's rung, and then everyone rushes out of the gate, and we're back to uh, pre-March status quo. In different sectors and different providers uh, for different geographic locations, there's going to be tweaking, dialing up, dialing down these directives to providers about what services can be made available, what cannot be made available. And so I think that 
understanding that this is going to be by its nature, even in a best case scenario from what I've seen, it'll be a game of inches for some time and managing that and all the communications challenges that, that goes with that, with having employees who are needed and required to come to work and then employees who can't because it's no longer an essential service and finding a way to manage through today to being open again, I think is going to be the the real challenge that the, the operators are going to try to need to manage through. You know, two, I think that it time will tell how much of an impact on the model it had, but I think that maybe a silver lining in retrospect one day will be that some of the policy decisions that were made in terms of granting waivers and providing additional flexibility around telemedicine and some of these other necessities, mother of invention type policies. Some of those I think will policymakers will see and say, you know, our fears around this, uh, this policy did not come to fruition and the benefit were immense where it, it enabled and improved access for patients. It improved safety for providers. You know, businesses will say, you know, I don't need to, you know, lease so much space, incur so much overhead. There'll be different models, I think, uh, for healthcare providers post-COVID, just managing the tail end of it and seeing what works and, and what doesn't. So I think those are two general responses I've got to that. What do you think, Molly? <laughs> let's let's predict <laughs> well, the future. On one hand, I don't think anyone really knows, to be honest. I think that, that you know, like Jesse, we, like he has a very informed, educated guess. And I think a lot of us do, but, but we don't really know. So I think about the answer to your question in two streams. One, what are the things that we do know? What are the things that we don't know? I think we don't know really what the long-term impact is going to be on the economy. So, you know, that for health services companies that are particularly doing elective procedures, are people going to be able to afford to go get them done? And are they going to have the money to go to the doctor and do all those things? So I think that's a big variable that no one knows the impact of. And then also, like, do people feel safe going back to the to the doctor and those types of things? So, you know, I think there's like some psychological impact also that we don't know from a long term basis. And what we do know is that, you know, patients typically prefer pre-COVID, they preferred going to outpatient setting to get procedures done because it's more convenient. Uh, it's faster, et cetera. Uh, their experience is better. Certainly the advancements in technology have supported that shift to services from inpatient to outpatient over the years. So, you know, safe to say that's going to continue. It still happens at a lower price point, still has patient preference and experience behind it. I think and a variable there would be what is the long-term impact of telehealth? I was talking to a client the other day who said we've had, you know, more acceleration of like the digitalization of healthcare from a delivery perspective in the last, literally like the last month than we have in like 10 years, you know, so we have some clients like on the hospital side who maybe had four or 5% of their patient population enrolled in telehealth and it's now like 75%. So that is a massive shift and health services companies have been doing that as well. So are people going to want to keep doing that? Are they going to want to come back to the doctor? Like how's all that going to shake out? Have to come back to the doctor in person. So I think that'll be something interesting to see what, what those patterns do. I think the way that private equity chooses to invest money in health services will be interesting. I hear a lot of people talk about there being a flurry of independent physician practices that won't have been able to weather this that might be up for sale. So they're forecasting more acquisitions on that front. 
you know, so where the money flows in the industry, what the policy changes are that are going to be that might impact the industry, I think all those things will, will also play a part in this.